Welcome to another episode of the B2B Startup Sales Podcast, this time with Valentin Splett from Teak Spirit, also hashtag a good market lead on Sales Playbook and full transparency. Uh, so Valentin, you build up MedTech uh, startups to seven-digit revenue twice, actually uh, work with, I think, at least 50 plus entrepreneurs in the health tech space. So uh, over to you, take us to the top on uh, what you experienced and what you would like to talk about today. Thank you, uh, Manuel. Thanks for having me. Um, I can, I'll try to keep it short. Um, I am an economist by trade. Uh, I moved to the US when I was 24 to build up sales in the US for a Swiss company in the biotech pharma space. Then I came back after five years, uh, joined a medical guy CTH spin-off, um, built up sales from zero to mid-seven-figure revenues. We then had an exit in 2016. I stayed with the company who bought us for a good year. And now for the past years, I've been consulting on scale-up and go-to-market challenges in health tech and life sciences. I'm also on the advisory board of a couple of early stage ventures. I'm on the board of directors of an e-health company and I'm a, in a kind of co-founder role, um, full friend, uh, family, but potentially more in the long run of two new ventures in, in uh, health tech. Uh, that might, you know, come to incorporation in in a year or two, or we will see. Thanks for the intro, Valentin. Uh, glad to have you here. Let's dive into the first topic, which is ICP, Ideal Customer Profile. Um, today, from from my perspective, one of the most important um, things to do as a sales organization when you start in a startup, because everything you do with that you build up right the messaging and uh, the, the the calls that you have everything builds up on what is your icp and i think a big part of the success of a lot of startups who are successful and sell quickly it's because they have a good a good niche defined niche a good defined icp um so what do you, what do you so so what how do you um volunteer when you would start a startup or, or in general how would you go to define the icp what are the important um points or when you define uh, an icp and how would you go about it right um excellent question thanks patrick i think there's probably two buckets uh, that startups typically are in one or the other um in the first bucket uh, are startups that are not even close to having an ICP. Um, what I see startups underestimate, you know, by an order of magnitude of five to 10, is the level of complexity in, in health tech and, and, and life sciences environments, which means that they don't know, they, they have a basic technology and they may have promising clinical feedback or, or even a data that shows patients get better, but they don't know which exact use cases to target, which buying centers to sell to, and they don't really know which jurisdiction or region to start uh, the company in. Um, that's kind of a, you know, more of a go-to-market than a, a sales growth uh, topic, but I see a lot of startups who fail at growing actually made mistakes in that early phase. And then the second, uh, bucket, so to speak, are startups that are on the market, have 
some market traction but are not growing and there i see that typically uh, startups try to grow in too many areas at the same time but have poor product market fit in all the areas that they're actually looking at so what they need to do is they need to sharpen a product market fit understand exactly who to target and then grow quickly to a high uh, market share percentage within that small segment, rather than trying to grow everywhere a little bit, but not really making a difference. I think that's an excellent point you, you bring up. And in, Patrick, that's one of your favorite examples on focusing on each other, crossing the chasm, I think, from like, we manage mm -hmm. your data and documents. I, I still get regularly, like every week from founders, like, hey, if you see like people great, good at sales or valuable business contacts is making introduction, pretty much anything goes. And every single time I push people to do the quiz or let people go through 13 questions, qualify themselves, like might we not miss out on something? Yeah. So how do you cope with that, that formal, that fear of missing out of early stage health tech founders? Well, it's tough because I think to some degree, you have a level of enthusiasm in startups um, that makes for you know good energy and uh, you know good uh, work ethic and uh, good um, corporate culture to some degree, but at the same time uh, it makes for very bad um, decision making in terms of uh, unit economics and you know sustainable growth and customer acquisition costs. Um, very often. I ask people the question, what do you think is the ratio of uh, what, you know, very established and successful uh, medtech companies like Medtronic or Philips spend on sales versus R&D? And, you know, you can look at different companies, Roche Diagnostics, Medtronic, uh, some others, and typically what they sell on sales, what they spend on sales and marketing is between three and ten times of what they spend for R&D. And startups don't know this. Well, you know, when you ask them, what do you think they spend on R&D? And they say, well, they probably spend five times as much on R&D than on sales. And they're completely shocked to hear that the opposite is true. And when you ask them, why do you think that is the case? Um, they start to understand, you know, large corporates make that decision because this is the way that they can profitably grow and reach patients. It's, you know, the technology in a mature market, the technology or the product is just 20% of what you need in order to succeed and being commercially successful. And then what I also see often is that startups think that, you know, there's, they come from an academic background often. They're very skeptical about the business world. And they think in, you, you cannot have a startup with um, sound corporate values and good value, values that you know are sustainable uh, from a society, societal point of view, and I think that if you make profits, you you know you're not doing something well for doctors or patients. And for them to understand that if you cannot build a profitable business model, you will not grow, you will not reach patients. There is no either so commercially successful or clinically successful. It's either you're both or you're nothing. And those kind of truths and understandings have kind of to sink, they have to sink in. You can't you know, understand sure. this context in, in that one call. You, have, you need a couple of hours and a couple of weeks maybe to, to understand that this is a matter of fact. 
and, and just so making sure that listeners get the, the order of magnitude of this issue, then when you say pharmaceutical companies spend like 5x of what they spend for R&D or 3 to 5x, but founders actually think it's 5 to 10x lower, that actually mm -hmm. gets us to basically a misunderstanding on the order of magnitude of 25 to 100x of what's Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Successful companies that have been around for 100 plus years, like Roche, Novartis, and so on, do. Yeah. So, what's what's a, a an issue in like on the value creation and then the value drivers? Why that that misunderstanding is still out there, and how are you tackling it with founders when you work with them as well? Great question. And um, I think some of the misunderstandings revolve around extremely long sales cycles. People think you need to involve two people at your customer's account and they can make a decision within three or six months. And as a matter of fact, uh, very likely you'll have to involve five to 10 people and decision, uh, the decision process takes 12, 18, maybe 24 months. Um, that is something where you have to educate people to become proficient salespeople who you know, don't make these typical long sales cycles mistakes where they think they're you know one month before the order after a year, but in fact they haven't moved the account at all. They haven't escalated within the account. They're not talking to the right person. They don't understand the budgeting process. They don't understand the evaluation hurdles that hospitals make for new suppliers and so on and so forth. Um, the other thing, especially at pre-revenue stage, it's really you know you have to make your customers sign either binding MOAs or pre-orders. And if you can't do that, then something with your value creation assumptions is wrong, right? There is absolutely no way that you are working on a commercially viable case and you can't get any customers to sign pre-orders or LOIs. Of course, it's hard work, but that's how you find out what you would need later on to sell into the account. What what are some tactics, Valentin, that you learned uh, over time that help you shorten the sales cycle? I think something that I got from Manuel, for instance, is um, always have an uh, always have a next meeting. So always, yep. uh, whatever happens, when that we all know the situation, right? The person says, "Hey, yeah, I'm gonna talk about it internally and get back to you." Mm -hmm. And then what you say is, "Yeah, well, well, um, can we?" Can we schedule a meeting like in two or three weeks so that you know when is your basically your deadline to to get to talk internally also because you know i get back to i i'm gonna follow you up via mail you get back and we have to schedule a new meeting it takes so much time it's just more efficient for both of us if we schedule another meeting is that okay for you and then 90 uh, percent of the time people will do that and it makes sense to do so that's one thing i guess or one tactic what tactics did you learn that you can shorten the sales cycle as a salesperson? Um, I think in B2B you need to understand what ticket size in your customer's organization leads to what process. Can your user approve two, five, ten, or maybe even 20K without having to go through uh, like a director or VP level? Um, Otherwise, things get more complicated. Um, I think there are some natural barriers uh, in every uh, sales process. You know, typically around 10K, around 20K, around 50K, around 100K and above, where you cannot shorten the sales cycle if you're within that area. 
So you have to downsize or value engineer your offering to get lower if that, you know, if, if shortening the sales cycle is without alternative and you have to do it in order to survive, then that's what you have to do. Make a lower value offer, make a subscription model instead of a capital spending, sell, you know, three months trials instead of one year subscriptions and so on and so forth. And I think that takes some, you know, understanding how to navigate, you know, pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, maybe academic institutions associated with labs and so on. Um, but you can definitely do that. And it's highly promising, especially in the early days when you need to show traction quickly to have a low, low entry barrier offering in addition to your, you know, large uh, ticket size sales. The other thing that I believe is helpful is if uh, startups tell your customer that they're under pressure commercially and that you know they're not here to, to play around, they're here to talk uh, sales. And if you talk to a customer and say, listen, um, you know, we're a startup and we have uh, pressure from investors, we have pressure from, from everybody, and we wanna show this tech works so we can actually reach patients. If, if we reach the next financing milestones, We'll be able to roll out in 30, 40 hospitals, and we'll, you know, treat thousands of patients a day potentially. Um, but in order to do that, I need to make sure, and I need to show my investors I'm working on a commercially viable case. So I understand you're excited about what we're doing, but and I'm excited to work together. But we need to make sure that this is going somewhere. And I'd rather you tell me no, you're not going to talk to your boss to get the 20 or 30k approved next month. Um, because you don't want to, or you're just not ready for that commitment. But let me know uh, because I need it from somebody. Even if it's not, if it's not you, I'm have I have to look for other partners to sell to in the early days. And I think that even goes further, right? Like a friend working for a pharmaceutical company, more in M&A related departments, like, hey, we don't buy startups because we want to. We just buy them because otherwise they die. And the innovation, mm -hmm. which is dearly needed for our R&D funnel, will never get to market. Mm -hmm. So, what I know, like even during COVID, some of larger companies do is actually get a subsidy, like programs, free credit, like at zero interest loans, to start so they survive. Because like building at the pipeline takes a very long time. Yeah. One point I found like very interesting from you is like when does the sales process actually switch to a buyer journey and when does the salesperson or typically co-founder early on become a coach for the buyer like yes. a mutual action plan to make it happen and I think Absolutely. people in sales don't appreciate that enough because they're still like in US you know right now have a lot about like um, buyer journey and uh, intent-based selling and so on in Switzerland they still live like with people selling Ubers and cars and it's like always be closing kind of yeah. Uh, honestly, I mean, when I started in sales, and I like many in our, our group and our uh, kind of circle, I came to this kind of by chance or by accident. But when I started in sales, the first book that really stuck with me, um, that I think is a really great re resource for people who, uh, you know, deal with long sales cycles, is spin selling. And I think this was the first time I understood you know, I'm not doing something wrong if I don't push to close in the first call because I, it felt off and when I tried it, I felt miserably because there is no way that you can convince a pharmaceutical company to spend $30,000 on the phone when you've never talked to them before. 
like you know not the biggest mastermind in sales can can do that it's just physically not possible so to understand how you can get your clients to this point where they can decide this as quickly and as time effectively as possible that is the real art and I feel like, you know, that the spin selling framework, while it may be outdated uh, in some respects, but in this overall um, process of navigating your account as time, as effectively and as quickly as possible to a point where they can actually decide this, this is, it's a, it's a true art. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Also with spin selling, I, I think it's not necessarily out well outdated. Let's say I think you can modify it a little bit. I still use SPI as 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 always uh, been yeah. like situation, problem, and implication. And and what usually gets omitted is the implication part, right? A lot of salespeople. And and the, I think the beauty or the the skill about it is to really ask these questions, like and and yeah. further on. I mean that's a framework that that you have and but the the skill becomes uh, for, for sure that's not for everybody possible right from the beginning when you start in sales but the skill becomes to listen to what they say and ask further questions why is that so why is that so and, and, and things like that to go to go deeper but i still use spi um, but i think in especially larger tickets is much better other than just having a neat payoff thing to because the need payoff thing is, is important that you do it with the right person. So instead, exactly. you yeah. you ask for decision criteria and decision process, which is much more important, as you say, having the first call kind of a need. So if we can give you that, would you buy it? Something like that doesn't make sense very often in the first call if you don't talk to the to the right. If you know you have to have everybody in there, right? I, I think so too, and I also think that probably this. Uh, I mean, even in the 80s when the book was first written, um, the need payoff uh, framework was, was probably the weakest in the book because that's where, you know, industry specific and product and, and organization specific criteria start to really, really make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I think what people often underestimate is that if you don't talk to the right people within the organization, then your sales your lead is stuck. And I have uh, this, there's this saying that says, if you shake the tree, the rotten apples fall down first. And <laughs> some healthy degree of pressure in sales uh, has to be applied, right? So and this is tough for startups and tough for founders who have absolutely no sales experience. But let's say you, you really need to sign a few uh, clients who pay for your product because otherwise you're not going to raise money and you have you know 10 or 20 leads and they all really like what you're doing but whenever you want to talk business you realize they're like eh, but you know this is kind of a research project for us and you can't afford this you good product feedback with absolutely no intention to buy is the worst that can happen to you as a startup it, it yep. basically says, you know, I like you, but I'm never going to give you any money. And if that's where you're stuck at, then you're out. This is, you know, the time is a ticking time bomb. I like yeah. that. I like, especially with what, one thing more I like to, to add on this, but to, something that a lot of sales also don't understand, I think, is the earlier you get the no, the better, right? The earlier you yeah. know that they ask Absolutely. those tough questions, hey, guys, we do business. 
right from the beginning so that is understood and if they mm -hmm. if they your sales cycle after the first call that's amazing you don't waste mm -hmm. any more time with those people absolutely. and then absolutely found yeah. back to closings and yeah. stuff like there that. is there is ample amount of data that shows that on average salespeople spend too much time with low quality leads and too little time yeah. with high quality leads yeah and i have this discussion literally on a daily basis at least once a day in every single group coaching call that people are like manual but if you implement your 13 question quiz will that not scare some people away it's like i really really that's fucking that hope so. because <laughs> i don't want to talk to people who don't take two minutes for a 45 minute call because these are not the people that are going to spend 10k yeah. and i always I will, give you an example. I will give you an example um in my previous startup um, we sold a very, very heavy, large uh, uh, and expensive machine to hospitals. And we had spent a lot of money, a lot of money for a startup at least, to have it installed in a truck so we could drive from clinic to clinic and showcase it to hospitals. And we did this uh, like crazy in the beginning, right? We drove to the uh, North Sea, um, I guess it's called East East Sea in yeah, just doesn't matter. like you know the, the part of Germany where you, you're on the highway yeah. from Zurich and you know to so just to see one client and and we we made like crazy hours and it just went on and on and on and we started to realize that a lot of these demos go nowhere they go nowhere because we are talking to the wrong people so you know the amount of money and time and resources we spent on these accounts is crazy and then we started to change the process and we said to all the clients who said, oh, I'd love to try it with patients. We said, listen, we will come to you for a full day for free, but you need to promise me one thing. First of all, I need to see the evaluation protocol ahead of time. So you're not just doing this for fun. You're actually seriously evaluating which patients will use it, in what degree of severity of illness, in what phase of the, with what indications and so on and so forth. And you need to promise me that A, your head of medicine and B, your commercial director of the hospital are going to come by for at least a cup of coffee, if not for a scheduled meeting on this day. And if you do this, and if you promise me that will happen, I'm very happy to do this. I'm very happy to, you know, come to you, drive a full day to your clinic, um, you know, spend a full day in, in, in your clinic. And, 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 and if not, then I, I my... Yeah, I always love finger pointing uh, to others when clients uh, wanted to not give me something. I would say, we have very mean investors. We have very, uh, I have a very mean <laughs> boss and he won't let me, uh, he doesn't give me the key to the, the, to the garage if, if you don't sign this and, and things like that. And we did much fewer demos, but our conversion shot up through the roof. It was, yeah. it was awesome to see this. And, and I highly recommend that startups take this seriously. And, you know, it, it's tough. It's tough because you're excited in the early days. Oh, I love it. You know, potential clients talk to me. Well, if if they don't commit to escalating internally and actually seriously evaluating whether to spend money on your product, they're not clients. They're just people who don't pass the mom test. And I think you, you bring up a, a very good point also in context of the current circumstances of everything being more remote and, and kind of locked down again with COVID. I, I had this 
after the first lockdown, this discussion with the president of Verkauf Schweiz, and he was like, I hate coffee for like mediocre sales guys. They always, they can only sell if they can stop by for seven coffees in seven months, and hopefully something will happen, and if they can basically discount the product. Yeah. And what I see a lot happening now, especially with people like not only the health tech, but with tangible products like hardware, robotics is a thing, or industrial engineering is a thing. It's like, oh, I cannot see the client because it's COVID. What do I do? I, I cannot work. This is like all COVID's fault. This is all the fault because I cannot discount the product. This is why it's not finished. So people take the excuses and it's like, even if part of it might be true, it's not helpful. Like, okay, you're, you're going to die like you excuse, but you're going to die. So yeah. what would you recommend people with a tangible product like hardware uh, that cannot go and see the client physically right now? Mm -hmm. um, th th that's a great question. Um, and I think COVID opened, opened the eyes of the P2B sales community in a lot of ways, because the assumption was always that, or from many people assumed that you need to have face-to-face -face contact and meet clients to build a level of trust so that they, you know, are ready to spend, you know, potentially quarter million or, or even more money on, on, on you and your product. Um, and this has changed. I think that there is no product or service whatsoever that you need, uh, that is a, where it's absolute requirement to, you know, be present at the client side for every meeting. I don't think that exists. Um, I have seen some uh, companies in B2B with, you know, large physical products move entirely online in sales. Um, they have built demonstration rooms with, you know, good audio, good video quality. They have kind of a, a, a little team within the sales team who does demos. And now the outbound sales guys who used to, you know, do 80,000 kilometers a year on the German Autobahn in their E-class. Now they just, you know, spend more time on the phone and try to get first demos. And then their demo team takes over. Somebody is, you know, maybe a patient or uh, they, they have like a routine on how to do an online demo and it works it really really works and i see that customers are much more willing to attend virtual demos than having salespeople uh, visit them and potentially waste their time yeah great insights i i definitely agree with this and not to mention um i just read i guess i don't, I don't know where but i read um that on average, salespeople work like with customers 21% of their time or something like that. I'm not surprised. I'm absolutely I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, and imagine, I mean, travel time, when, especially in Germany. I worked in Germany three years and I was traveling to Munich, to Berlin, like eight hours a day for one meeting, for one hour meeting. Um, so much traveling and you can't really do calls or something like really productive. Yeah, you can write emails, but we all know um, that email is not our favorite uh, mean, right? To talk to, to talk to someone. So imagine 25%. If if you if you do everything virtually, you probably gain another 20% at least per day uh, that you have time to pick up the phone and and start dialing. How it, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. So I fully agree well, with, with, I don't think we had, we didn't have any impact. Okay. We sell software, but how would you have done it with the, you, you mentioned that story where you went with the truck. Uh, yeah, in the north. And that's a tough one. I, I know some startups who really, really struggle with this. 
but I think I think you can uh, do a COVID-proof demonstration protocol. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, maybe a little bit uh, tricky. Just you know, now until I hope we get the situation under control a bit better. But even if infection rates are still high, you can have safe interactions. You need to show your customers that you know you have a disinfection protocol. Your employees are trained. They get you know have a rapid test before the demonstration mm -hmm. and you commit to this and you can still at least uh, until a couple of uh, weeks ago um uh, you were able to schedule demos uh, even in you know acute clinics with covid patients um, and elderly care homes um but i think that the goal is to maximize the time you have to pre-qualify and then now, if you are unable to visit clients and if you have you know, a lot of demos and everything canceled, now is the time to pre-qualify to build the relationship uh, through virtual interactions, through you know, showing proficiency and showing and good clinical results and good making good productive results. virtual demos. And then demos. you can uh, move on to having productive demos yeah, I think the, the elephant in this room here in, in this whole discussion is really like what you mentioned that it, there is a huge potential to lower customer acquisition costs and to increase mm -hmm. data-driven sales by having pre-qualification. The only thing I wonder sometimes is why no more people do it. But on the other hand, it, it's also like an opportunity, right, uh, to really install these things right now. Like, and I'm people sometimes that I manually did like 20 remote sales webinars. You don't seem to like people physically. I was like, I love seeing people physically, but if it's business, then it needs to be worth it. And I, I loved your example and say like, hey, we only, I only come by if there's commitment pro quo. Um, a tricky thing I see with a lot of startup founders, they're needy, right? They don't have this whole pipeline like an SAP, or a Roche, an ABB of this world. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, but that's the only contact I can talk to in December still this year. I will do everything like in hell and take one for the team in the wording of one of our colleagues to make that happen. How do you approach founders when they're really in this kind of needy state to get them in a different mindset of equal players? I mean, I think we all know this and we probably all were um, in our sales careers needy at some point and really desperate to get new business. I think that's a natural thing to happen here and there. But if you've gone through this, you know that um, your you know, situation is part of the problem and part of the cause of the problem. If you're, if you're in a needy mindset, it's really tough to close sales and it's really tough to do sales. So if you... Um, and we had in, in my startup, we had this a couple of times. We were not sure if our main investors are going to, you know, pay out the next tranche. And we did not know on the 15th whether on the 25th we can pay our employees. But you cannot let them know that. Neither your customers nor your employees have any benefit if you tell them, you know what, things are really shitty right now. And we don't know if we're going to make it into next month. Absolutely not. You have to suck it up, keep this to yourself. And tell yourself before every meeting, you know, I'm in, I'm in a really uh, tricky situation, but my goal of this meeting is the customer will absolutely not realize this. And the customer should get the impression that I have all the resources I need uh, and 
he's not my kind of last option. How um, how did you do the prospecting, Valentin? At your uh, with your experience, how did you get in leads? Did you focus on more like inbound marketing parts? Did you fully outbound get get in? And how did you get in in contact with the with the people? Um, you know, when I started in the US, uh, it was quite normal to me to pick up the phone and make thirty phone calls every day, and I tried to keep that spirit up when I came back and, and uh, joined my startup. And I tried to, uh, with a mix of carrot and stick, I would say, I tried to have everybody in my sales team do the same. And this was tough because, you know, you as a co-founder or like a co-owner may have a different uh, risk reward ratio. So your level of pain that you're <laughs> ready to take is, is maybe higher than one of an average sales uh, person. But this was really an approach that has worked and still works. Of course, today I would, you know, nuance it a bit um, to, you know, use social social media more effectively to have a healthy balance of inbound and outbound. But I think if you are, you know, close to coming to the market and you realize you need to fix your sales pipeline, to this day, the quickest and most effective and by far the least costly way to do this is to just find a, a list of 200 people to call and call them one by one and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Not sure, not well with, with the least, least uh, I, I definitely agree as a startup, it's very important to also have the people on the phone, right, and get their experience and, and learn about uh, what they think. Um, these days, I think at the beginning when you know who to talk and if these people are like on LinkedIn, um, you can also very, very quickly put together campaigns and reach out by emails. I think my experience as well with the US compared to, to EU, I mean, we both know, Valentin, in, in, in the US, email campaigns, <laughs> forget about it. There is no way yeah. like people can answer. It's a 0.01% booking rate, which is like useless. And, and in Switzerland, it's still between I mean, with your customers, Manuel, we, we make the experience five to, to 20 or even sometimes 30% booking rate out of emails. So to put together a list of 200 people with by email, you know, and then reach out to them the first time via email and 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 and, and then get your number. Because I, I think now these days it's hard to get direct, well, direct numbers. Um, I'm not sure, sure it's hard actually. Valentin, maybe you have a, an idea here how to get um, direct dialing numbers i love it when they send me an email back and i have their signature and there is a number i always call i would always and, and when somebody said i'm not interested i'll put it in uh, into my salesforce talk i will build a salesforce task which says call him in three months uh, yeah. again so then i know you know then you learn why and or i call directly and ask okay why what's yeah. the reason and, and what, uh, what did you i think what, it what depends it really depends on which market you're in and what your, you know, your main uh, key stakeholders of the account you're selling into are up to. Um, in in life sciences, it's typically easy to find out who to contact on LinkedIn and you know people like managing labs or doing procurement for pharma or biotech or they're on LinkedIn. You can find them. You can find them through you know conference rosters and. But in a hospital environment, very often people are not on LinkedIn, um, and then you 
can either say, well, I'm just not going to sell to this hospital, or you can say, I'll try to reach the department secretary, uh, introduce myself very politely, and say, hey, whenever your bus is five minutes, um, please let me talk to him. Um, I will send you uh, some material ahead of time. I know that one of his colleagues um, has uh, given us the okay to contact him. Um, so yeah, let's let's uh, go from take things from there. And then, of course, you have to be really, really persistent. And if you t sell to doctors, um, you have to be really persistent. And another thing is that in the in the healthcare environment, references are even more important than in other B2B markets because there is this really 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 hierarchical food chain of opinion makers and uh, you know people who are in the important associations and and uh, medical boards and no it's uh, doctors are uh, very very uh, prone to social proof if you have the top 3 or top 5 doctors in a community give you their go ahead this makes things extremely uh, much much more more uh, effectively I think one one thing like fully agree on social proving doctors even more also like what I hear but in any industry people like let the customer tell the story the customer will any customer will do a better job at selling your offering than you can do just because the way we engineer the social animals I guess one thing we didn't touch upon so much we always talk about the customer the prospect is what you also mentioned mentioned like often is that in health tech it's just inherently more complex because besides the hospital or the pharmaceutical company you got a user you got a patient you got a payer you got insurance you got regulators you got certification agencies like the fda so how do you basically make sure you orchestrate the whole process so everybody's on board because this just and brings the whole typical buyer journey on another level in health tech, I understand. That's, that's a very, very uh, important aspect. And I think the first, the first uh, nail you'll have to kind of, you know, hit on the head is business model design. If you improve clinical endpoints, but you have absolutely no way uh, to get reimbursed without the hospital, you know, making a deficit on, on, on improving their patients, then you're kind of kind of in a bad bad uh, situation. You have to understand the value chain before you finalize the business model, and then it's a matter of understanding who is involved quickly um, and understanding who needs to contribute what, so this goes through, and. I uh, I have you know worked with some startups who did this extremely well, um, and I have worked with some who you know were stuck on this for a year. And I think something that as a startup you always need to ask is you need to you know ask your 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 contact who will be involved in this decision. And if they say well you know talk to me, and once you've given me this and that and that and that. I will sign the paperwork or I will make sure my boss signs the paperwork. Um, you can't really afford to take that for granted. And an important question to ask clients in such a situation is, please tell me the process or what was the process the last time you purchased something like this? And then they, they will say, well, you know, um, 
first of all, they demonstrated really well that patients actually get better. And then I involved my boss and we sat together and then I said, okay, the budgeting takes six months. And then we find some grant money to pay for it before the official budget and so on and so forth. And this tells you um, already a lot of really valuable information. First of all, your contact can't decide by herself or himself. Second, uh, they are, you know, willing to sit together with potential uh, potential suppliers in this area and not just sending you to procurement. And third, uh, that they're actually willing to go out of their way and maybe get things through without following the official budgeting procedure if they really, really like something, if it really makes their patients better. So there is a healthy amount of time and a healthy uh, level of depth you need to invest into these conversations with customers. And if you don't do that, you will maybe come to the market. Rather likely you will not get financed to get to the market, but if you are in the market, suddenly you realize you have a financing gap of 12 to 18 months because your sales cycles, you think they're actually one month before completion, but in fact, they're just a you know, square one. Yeah, yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Um, one last question from me, Valentin, I guess, um, regarding your sales cycle that you that you used, how well did you, you, you mentioned you used SPIN, was that something mandatory for everyone in the first call to use that framework or to use a script or a framework, or how did you, how did you do that in your sales organization? Um, I think when I had, the, in my startup, I, I didn't have domain knowledge of the, of the disease. Um, so it took me some time to figure out how, you know, these clinics are organized and who has what level of power within the organization. But after I had, you know, a couple of weeks of, of uh, experience, um, I structured the sales process really, really clearly to give my sales team guidance on how to evaluate where they are in the sales process. And I, you know, iterated on the criteria every few months in the beginning to make sure that we are tracking the right sales KPI and that, you know, it doesn't happen that we have accounts in you know the last phase where you think oh they're gonna you know sign a po maybe next week and in fact they're two years away from making a serious decision and um, because that can kill you if, if, if you don't have your the value of your sales pipeline at face value then you're you're flying blind and you're very likely gonna run out of money before you have any serious revenue from customers i think understanding where in the process they are, what needs to happen next. So the, in spin terminology, this is distinguishing the advance from the continuation, right? And really being diligent and brutally honest with yourself and your team about where things really stand is the basis for having you know, effective escalation and moving forward in, in the sales process. Excellent. I'd even say closing words. Thanks so much, uh, Valentin, for joining us on the B2B Startup Sales Podcast. Uh, so, Valentin, you build up a health tech venture from zero to mid-seven-digit revenue. You are working with like 100-plus uh, health tech ventures over the last years, active in some of them yourself. Uh, excellent insights on mapping the buyer journey. Anything last you'd like to say to our listeners uh, where they can find you and how to get in touch? 
uh, get in touch quite easily. I think you'll have links in the postings. <laughs> Otherwise, look me up on LinkedIn, uh, Valentin Splat, uh, or shoot me an email at info at peakspirit.ch. Uh, as a final remark to uh, you know tech or science-driven founders in the healthcare space, um, who are you know maybe a little bit skeptical or kind of think you know sales is kind of a weird thing, um, I highly invite. Uh, founders to treat this as a beautiful lab experiment where you know they're trying to build something really great in a lab and just with the same passion think about how will the business model work and how what what do i need to tweak do i need to add a little more of this or do i need to change a little bit of that in order to build a successful business and then you know building a successful business in healthcare means making patients better and there is no way of doing one thing without the other yeah, and as a closing remark from my side, thank you so much for having me. This hour went by very quickly, and uh, yeah, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation.